Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, what lessons might have lawmakers and the governor learned last year that could help them in year two of divided government? And we meet Arizona's top Girl Scout cookie seller. But first, Arizona lawmakers are back at the Capitol today and they'll be debating a whole host of issues ranging from what is meat to how residents can buy tickets to popular events. With me now is he is every Monday during the legislative session for a preview of what to expect this week at the state capitol is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Good morning, Howie. Good morning. Glad to hear your sunny voice on such a dreary day. (laughs) Likewise, back at you. So let's start with meat. And there has been some controversy uh, now that the, uh, the the federal government is allowing, at least in limited quantities, uh, lab-grown meat to be uh, cultivated. What are our state lawmakers looking to do in this regard? Well, this comes down to, I guess you'd start off with the question of consumer protection. If you go in and you buy a chicken breast, are you entitled to know if it came from something that actually had two legs and a heart and could run around? Or are you entitled to know whether it came from a laboratory up the block? The very least that I think lawmakers want to do is some sort of education. So much the same way that you cannot label a soy burger as, as meat or uh, anything like that, mm-hmm. I think they wanted to say this came from a lab. Now, how they do that and without going through the ick factor and, and everything else is, remains to be seen. There is another bill out there by a freshman representative, Marshall, which would ban the sale of lab-grown meat. Now, I don't know how far that's going to get. Now, his interest, he says, is about protecting consumers, but let's also understand that his interest is about protecting ranchers. In fact, as his legislation specifically says, we want to keep ranchers financially and healthy, and we want to make sure that they're not getting this new competition from lab-grown meat. Now, there are deeper issues in there in terms of if you're a vegetarian, uh, if it hasn't come from an animal, does that make it more acceptable? Uh, you know, issues of how much methane cattle produce. And so this is going to be a very fascinating debate. Yeah. And the debate over disclosure coming up in committee today. Also, yes. how we uh, lawmakers will be debating sort of a, a perennial issue, but sort of a different approach on it today in terms of how to make sure that the state has enough money to pay for road maintenance when the gas tax, which, as we've been discussing over the last several years, hasn't been raised in a long time, is also, you know, not being used by people who have electric vehicles. Well, that's been the issue. You know, for, for a while, your know, electric vehicles were cute. You know, people would think of golf carts and everything else. But as we've seen with Tesla and Lucid and other companies and even some of the mainstream companies, they're going to all electric vehicles, which is great. And we can debate the merits of that and batteries and everything else. But Arizona roads are paid for largely by gasoline taxes, which, as you point out, haven't been raised from their 18 cent level since the 1990s. So even assuming that we could somehow keep up with inflation, as we have more electric vehicles on the road, and some of them are much heavier than regular cars, Mm -hmm. how do we make sure they pay their fair share? Now, one of the things that's been discussed over the years is sort of what happens actually with large trucks. It's kind of a ton mile tax where you drive so many miles, your vehicle weighs so much, uh, you're going to pay your share on that. This has come 
up against some really severe opposition from folks who say you're interfering with people's privacy. You're, you're, you're allowing the state to track them, where they've been, and everything else. Never mind your phone can do that, but we'll, we'll leave that aside <laughs> for a moment. So you're, you're into the question there of how do you get people to do that? At some point, we are going to need to address it, whether through some sort of tracking or maybe even a voluntary statement or maybe much in the same way that, you know, those who have gasoline-powered vehicles go in for an annual inspection. There'd be an annual inspection of electric vehicles, and you'd look at the odometer and say, okay, you drove this many miles, therefore you owe this much. Hmm. This has got to be resolved at some point. But again, you've got to deal with the privacy issue, and do you want people knowing where you've been and how often? Right. So, Howie, that's uh, that's coming up uh, also later today. Tomorrow, there's going to be a bill, and I know that this affects you uh, because I know how hard you work to get tickets uh, to Taylor Swift concerts. So when she was uh, touring not that long ago, uh, this bill deals with uh, bots and, and other folks who buy up large quantities of tickets and, and resell them sort of on the open market, trying to make sure that people who want to go to very popular concerts or sporting events can actually get to them. This is a proposal by Representative David Cook of Globe, who said the technology has reached the point where the moment a ticket window opens, and in Taylor Swift's case, it was even early tickets, there are computer programs who can come in and buy up all the tickets. The way they do that is they've got a way of saying, well, we're going to change our ID number so you can't tell it came from the same computer. I don't fully understand a lot of that, which is why I do radio and newspapers. <laughs> but you can get around things by, by changing all of that. He says that's not fair. Now, he believes he has legislation that would outlaw it. Now, you get in some interesting questions of how effective that can be and even how does that even affect out-of-state companies that are buying up tickets, let's say, for a concert in Glendale. There's also some proposals out there that would appear to regulate scalpers. Now, we used to have an anti-scalping law in, in Arizona. They've kind of diluted it. Uh, you know, the, the NFL had wanted it when they first came to town. But then you get into issues of, well, why can't I buy up tickets and resell them? And so there's a very delicate balance in there between my individual rights to say, hey, I've got eight tickets for the final four and I want to sell them and I want to make a profit off of that versus some sort of large corporate entity doing that. Right. That'll be interesting. And that, again, uh, coming up in committee tomorrow. That is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. He'll always go have these with you on a Taylor Swift tickets. Thanks, Howie. You're very welcome. The 2024 legislative session is now in its third week, and already partisan disagreements have sprung up on issues like school vouchers, the size of the budget deficit, and the future of the Arizona Commerce Authority. Last year's session was the longest in state history, and Governor Hobbs set a new record for the number of vetoes. To get a sense of how this session may be shaping up, I'm joined by Kevin DeMena, a longtime lobbyist and Capitol observer. And Kevin, now that we're in year two of divided government, based on what we saw last year and what you've noticed so far this year, what kind of session do you think we're in for? Well, there's clearly an intent to make it a short one, but I don't know if that's what's in the cards. Um, the constitutional requirement to begin the session, the second Monday in January, doesn't have a uh, complimentary bookend to it that says you must be done. The beginning of the fiscal year, ending June 30 and starting July 1, has always been this clear and present deadline. Yeah. 
But there's been a push to shoot for 100 days. That's advisable this year. Looking at the volume of bills, the number uh, of bills in the area of water law, uh, education, and certainly elections, it doesn't seem 100 days is possible. It's a great target, great goal. Well, when you talk about bills in areas like water, like housing, sort of these big, complicated issues that tend to take more than one year, more than one session to make appreciable difference, could this be the year? Is this the kind of year where some of those sort of weighty issues could be dealt with? You know, we always have what I think of as moments, an intersection where uh, Gail Griffin, the chairman of the committee that oversees water in the House, uh, comes to terms with uh, the governor's office and things march forward. It's hard to do in a compressed period of time and it's hard to do with the rate of turnover uh, to build trusting relationships. These things take time and, and that's not a bad thing. Anytime we rush through legislation, and I mean rush it, always, we call them trailer bills. It's cleanup, yeah. end of the parade. So I, as a professional don't see session as something that actually ends. It's the beginning of the next one that starts with the end of the previous. For most of the successful policymakers, they treat it as a year-round endeavor. Uh, You don't think these things up in January when the session starts. Hopefully, there's a prelude. There's been drafting and stakeholder meetings. Again, with the turnover, some of this has fallen away. Better law takes time. Well, when you talk about the turnover, 2024, of course, also an election year, which typically is an incentive for lawmakers to end their session earlier. Do you think that's going to be the case this year? The Speaker of the House is running for Congress. The President of the Senate has every interest in shortening the session as well. Those are the Republican leaders. They're the ones barely but in control. So the idea of getting done quickly revolves around the state budget and the governor's budget the legislative product, there's a lot of daylight between the two. But this is something that the folks at the Capitol, if there's one thing they're used to doing, it's producing budgets. I want to ask you about the budget because you and I had this kind of conversation last year and we talked about what the budget might look like in order to get a Republican majority in the legislature and a Democratic governor on board with it. And a lot of folks are saying that, you know, part of the reason we're in the financial situation we are in right now is because of the way that the budget was done. So I'm wondering if you see the process that they will have to take on this year as maybe what they could and perhaps should have done last year. More deliberative, for sure. The professionalism will lead to a better product, Mm. but the priorities, ESAs, uh, other issues – There's a lot of room to compromise because the polls are pretty far apart for the moment. The reality is that they need to get in a room. They need to do what they do best. Last year was a watershed moment. Never experienced anything like this. The three leaders went away, came back with a product and in effect skipped the public hearings. So a more deliberative, deeper dive approach, I don't see that happening but maybe that's what it takes to get us done. Do you think given the fact that we are no longer dealing with a surplus situation, but rather a shortfall situation, does that lead to a more deliberative process? It should because one or 2% across all state agencies is just kicking the can down the road. It takes time to prioritize between children's services and roads projects. In an election year, 
with the pace that this legislature is used to moving. I don't see that deeper dive happening. You know, it's been done before. Get the budget done. Come back in special sessions on water, Mm -hmm. other items. Uh, Fundraising becomes an issue uh, with the primaries looming and you're able to raise funds after the regular session session concludes even if special sessions have been called. Well, so you mentioned primaries and I'm curious what kind of impact – those might have on another word you mentioned, which is compromise. I mean, you mentioned a House Speaker, Ben Toma, running for Congress in uh, what is currently Debbie Lesko's district in a very competitive primary. I don't want to call him out specifically because it's not just him, but four candidates on both sides of the aisle running in competitive primaries. Does that disincentivize them from compromising with the other side? Well, yes, though I don't know that there's much in the way of compromising going on these days mm. at the Arizona legislature anyway. But the notion of primary challengers, this is the most intense election cycle I've experienced. And it's not for – it's not because of the money. It's not because of Trump's shadow. Uh, There's an intensity and the candidates feel it. Uh, Their legislative district meetings certainly reflect it and they can be unpleasant. And that intensity gets translated down to the Capitol. In so many ways, and you've touched on some of them, last year was such an anomalous session. I'm wondering if you think this year's will be sort of more, let's call it typical, even though the same players by and large are in the same places. There is this remarkable angle of repose. The legislature always finds its natural state. Uh, For the longest time, it's been around 1,500 bills introduced every year. Sessions are longer and I think the more we ignore that trend, it's to our disadvantage. We need to pay legislators more so that they can dedicate the time and simply produce the product we want. So the trend, I think, irresistibly as our state grows, policies become more complicated, is toward more legislation, longer sessions and hopefully better product along the way. By and large – Of the – if you think about it, 200 bills produced last time signed by the governor, the normal average is about 318 per year. Um, There's good product in there, those 202 laws and of the other 100 or so vetoed, they'll be back. That's the weird thing about this process. It isn't just a single session. Issues persist over the years and if they're done properly, if the committee process – is adhered to, it actually improves it. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Kevin Demetta, longtime Capitol Observer. Kevin, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure to be on KJAZZ. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how one Valley Girl Scout became a world-class cookie seller. So I knock on the door and then I ask them, would you like to buy some Girl Scout cookies? And then if they say no, I say, um, would you like to get like a paper that has my QR code so you can get some if you want some later? How she was able to sell the most boxes in Arizona last year. But first. 
Arizona has never had a senator who is Latino. That's despite the fact that 33 percent of Arizonans are Latino, and it's a fast-growing part of our population. But when Democratic candidate Ruben Gallego posted these facts on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, and said that's going to change in November, presumably when he will be elected, he says, many called him out for playing identity politics and running mostly on a campaign of being Latino. But our next guest says... Not so fast. Elvia Diaz is the editorial page editor of the Arizona Republic, and she's joined this morning by columnist Phil Boaz to talk more about it. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. So, Elvia, let's begin with you and your argument here. What's your take here? Like, is this not identity politics or is it identity politics that matters? Well, it is identity politics, but the idea is who's doing the the identity, who's doing the politics here, Mm -hmm. who's saying that. So I wrote a column based on uh, another column from a colleague of mine that wrote about actually Senator Christian Sinema, the uh, Democrat turned independent, uh, whom we still don't know if she's going to be running for the U.S. Senate. And uh, her column was specifically about Sinema's uh, dealings with immigration at the U.S. Senate right now, you know, possibly uh brokering a deal. And she had a, a line there, the fact that it was characterized as running a campaign of being Latino cut my attention because I thought, well, did I miss anything? I mean, mm-hmm. the, well, what is it that I'm missing? So obviously I paid closer attention and it was one tweet. And that's what really got me interested. And of course, we discuss this extensively internally. And I want to read you the tweet because I think it's very telling. So essentially, what Ruben Gallego uh, admitted, and that's the great political sin that I'm writing about, is that 33% of Arizonans are Hispanics, and that 33% of Arizonans do not have a Hispanic representative in the U.S. Senate from Arizona, and that that would change in November if he gets to be elected. That's it. Is mm-hmm. is one tweet is stating a fact, mm-hmm. and my point is that he doesn't have a choice. He is Hispanic. He's going to be characterized as being a Hispanic no matter what. Mm. And and I think you're also arguing here, right, that like it it matters that we haven't had a Latino represent us in the Senate. Well, yes, of course. I mean, it is a fact. And for a third of the Arizona population, Latinos have not had a a senator from from this state. So again, Ruben Gallego is merely stating a fact, but he's being characterized as playing identity politics. Let me turn to you then, Phil, because you've written extensively about identity politics and this idea that it's sort of it's taking over the conversation in politics in a way that it never has before, I think, right now. What's your take here? You know, God bless Ruben. <laughs> Ruben Gallego can do whatever he wants. It's his campaign and he can message any way he wants to. I think he made a mistake with this tweet because it, it comes off as identitarian. He sounds like the candidate who is running to represent Latinos. And we actually have a control study on this in Arizona. And it was David Garcia. David Garcia ran for superintendent of public instruction in 2014 and surprised everybody because he beat uh, Diane Douglas in Maricopa County. He lost her by one point as a Democrat to the Mm. Republican, even though she had an enormous registration lead over him. But he did take Maricopa County, which is largely has a huge um, Republican advantage. He had real crossover potential and he was showing it. Then he runs for governor and he runs completely as an identitarian 
politician. He mm -hmm. runs as the Latino candidate and he's all about the border issues and things like that. And he, he got killed by Doug Ducey. He lost by 14 points. It was a landslide. And he was a guy with so much potential. And we haven't heard from him since, really. Mm -hmm. He hasn't really been a factor when he, he seemed to have the, the, the world in his hands after that, that race against Douglas and he, performing so well. So to put out a tweet like that, I think it was a mistake. But what, what really, I think, was dumb about it is I don't think that describes who uh, Ruben Gallego is. I, Ruben Gallego has these amazing life experiences, part of it being growing up poor Latino in Chicago, sleeping on the floor, uh, you know, having these life experiences that he sees so much, uh, going on to Harvard, serving in the military, and he's really been projecting a lot of that, a lot, especially the military service, the veterans and things like that, more so than the Latino messaging. Mm -hmm. but, then, but then, Lauren, if I if I may, yeah. you know, what Phil said, it is, uh, it is correct about his background. The politics for this is we're talking about one tweet. And Ruben Gallego has a whole history of being in the U.S. Congress. The whole discussion is about one tweet, not about Ruben Gallego's trajectory and his life. I mean, he is, as, as Phil mentioned, a Harvard graduate, a convert Vietnam. He has raised a lot more money than, than, than Kerry Lake so far. Yet we're only talking about one tweet. And mostly when people write about him, it's about that he is a Hispanic. So my question is, who's doing the identity politics? Is it him or is it everyone else saying that, uh, that is identity politics by acknowledging who you are? Let me ask you about the other people in this race, notably Kirsten Cinema, who you mentioned. I mean, so she has not yet even declared whether or not she's running. But when she did win this seat, she ran this very kind of tightly managed and tightly messaged middle of the road centrist campaign. And many are saying if Gallego wants to win, he will also do that. And this is not doing that. What do you think about that, Phil? And the fact that, you know, Kirsten Cinema also became the first woman to ever represent Arizona in the Senate. There's real doubt as to whether Cinema uh, is even going to get into this race. And uh, Ron Hansen at the Republic just did a story about how she's running out of time. She has to make a decision very soon in order to be on the ballot. And uh, there's no indication yet that she is going to run. And I mean, if you have cinema in the race, the, the, there might be an argument for going identitarian. But the, if this is going to be Carrie Lake and Ruben Gallego, then I think Ruben Gallego, politically speaking, wants to go as mainstream as he can and get the crossover that he, he can. And and just being a veteran and, and his service in Iraq, he's going to win support. He has the potential to win a lot of support. Uh, among working class Republicans and, and veterans Republicans. He can win those people, some of those people, you know, if he if he doesn't go too far with woke politics. Now, he controlled that tweet. Who who was emboldened by that tweet? It was Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake responded, you know, Ruben Gallego is running for Senate to represent just a third of our state. I'm running to represent all Arizonans. Mm. Uh, she says, the race card isn't going to work for you here, Ruben. You can see how this created an enormous opening for Carrie Lake that she just drove her truck through. And who do you think is happiest today that we're talking about this issue on KJAZ? It's not Ruben Gallego. Hmm. 
Let me ask you the last question then, Elvia. I mean, do you think Gallego, do you think he should run a cinema-like campaign? And why does or do you think that talking about the fact that he's Latino, you know, counters that? You know, well, sadly, Arizonans do want to hear someone who doesn't even mention the fact that you are a minority. You know, they they want mainstream politics. So this is a larger issue overall that Arizonans may be willing to vote for a Latino as long as you don't say that you are a Latino, although, you know, that person has no control, has no say, you know, on, on his background. So it does talk about the kind of electorate that we have in Arizona, the kind of voters that, that, that we have. So I do acknowledge that he will have to run a very scripted and tight campaign. I do agree with that. But my argument as well is that that really indicates the kind of borders that we have in Arizona, that identity politics plays a role here, but not from the person running the campaign, but but from everyone else, the borders themselves. Okay, we'll leave it there for now. That is Elvia Diaz, editorial page editor with the Arizona Republic, joined by columnist Phil Boaz this morning. Thanks to you both. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Religious tensions are high right now in India after that country's prime minister opened a Hindu temple. That came ahead of elections that are expected to take place this spring. With me via Skype for our weekly look at some of the key global stories in the coming days is the BBC's Rich Preston in London. And Rich, what exactly will you be keeping your eyes on this week as it relates to India? Yeah, it's a big deal for India this week, Mark. Uh, Narendra Modi, the prime minister there, has today inaugurated a new Hindu temple, the Ram Temple in the state of uh, in the city of Ayodhya in the state of Uttar Pradesh. Uh, he was there with around 4,000 religious leaders, 2,000 other invited guests, dozens of dignitaries from other countries. Now, Mark, there are around 7,000 Hindu temples already across India. So how much of a big deal is it that there is one more? Well, this is a huge deal. This temple has been massively controversial. It's a shrine to celebrate the birthplace of the Hindu god Ram, one of the most revered gods in Hinduism. Now, Hindus make up around 80% of India's population, but that's not 100%. And whilst millions of Hindus are celebrating this, they say it's a long-standing dream come true. For India's Muslims, this evokes many painful memories. And Mark, that is because this temple stands on the ground that once housed a medieval mosque. That mosque was illegally torn down by Hindu mobs in the early 1990s. That triggered religious violence across the country in which thousands of people were killed. These tensions have existed for many years, but they've flared up at various points, especially in the 80s and 90s. And during his election campaign in 2014, Mr Modi made it a promise to build this Hindu temple on this site. Now he is seeing through on that, but many accuse him of violating India's secular constitution. 
and the constitution as well is key because the timing of this is no coincidence. This all comes days before India celebrates its Republic Day, 75th Republic Day this year. That's uh, when uh, Indians celebrate their constitution coming into effect. Now, whilst this on the surface seems like a religious event, it is political. This has been entirely orchestrated by the BJP, the Hindu nationalist BJP government led by Narendra Modi. It is the only political party present at today's inauguration. Other political leaders and opposition parties have refused to attend. So for many in the country, for many of those Hindus, this is a dream come true. They feel like they've been waiting decades and generations for this. But for others in India, they feel like this is them losing their place in the country as India slides further towards Hindu nationalism under the leadership of Narendra Modi. Yeah, that is really interesting. All right, Rich, uh, let's move now to uh, Elon Musk, who will be uh, making a trip this week. This comes as the war between Israel and Hamas continues. Musk will be making a trip to the Auschwitz concentration camp. Why is this trip significant? Well, Mark, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, since the Hamas attack of October the 7th, we have seen a rise around the world in anti-Semitic violence, anti-Semitic abuse and anti-Semitic crime. That, of course, includes, sadly, the online world and in particular X, formerly known as Twitter, which is now owned by the billionaire Elon Musk. Now, when Mr. Musk took over Twitter, one of the first things he did was to get rid of many of the people who worked in content moderation. Those people supervising posts, checking they were compliant with Twitter policies and responding when people reported offensive content. Now, Mr. Musk has not only been accused of allowing anti-Semitic posts to remain online on X, but in some cases of endorsing them or promoting them by sharing or responding or engaging uh, with them. Now, Mr. Musk denies any accusations of being anti-Semitic, but that did prompt a wave of advertisers, including major multinationals, to pull their ad campaigns from X, saying they didn't want to be associated with this anti-Semitism. Now, this week, European and Israeli leaders are meeting in Krakow in Poland for the annual conference of the European Jewish Association, and Mr. Musk will be there. There. As part of the trip, he'll be visiting the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp, which was the largest and deadliest of the Nazi death camps. 1.1 million people died at Auschwitz. The vast majority of, of them, of course, were Jewish people. And again, the timing here is significant because this all comes ahead of International Holocaust Memorial Day, when people around the world uh, commemorate and remember the six million people murdered during the Holocaust. And of course, with the Hamas attack in the background, that was considered to be the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. Now, Mr. Musk's visit does two things. First of all, it patches things up somewhat with Israeli leaders and the Jewish community. He went to Israel previously to see the site of the Hamas attack. But it also goes a step further than that, because as the conflict between Israel and Hamas continues, many people look not only at world political leaders, but also as at business leaders and influential people in the media to kind of almost pick their side, as it were. Many see this as Mr. Musk making his position very clear. All right, Rich. Finally, let's go to South Korea now, where on Friday, a major court case, uh, which could impact the future of one of the world's biggest tech companies, Samsung, will be taking place. What's happening here? 
Yeah, this is really interesting. Samsung, uh, until recently, was the world's biggest smartphone manufacturer. It was only recently overtaken by Apple, but it is still a major electronics player, of course. Now, ever since it was built in the 1930s, Samsung has existed in various different entities. That was always just the structure of the business. But in 2015, there was a merger of two major Samsung affiliates. That merger was worth $8 billion. Right at the center of this case is J.E. Lee, the chairman of Samsung Electronics. He has been accused of accounting fraud and stock price manipulations related to this merger. Now, the case has already been heard in court. That was last November. And prosecutors then were pushing for him to be sentenced to five years behind bars. Now, as part of the merger, he assumed control of both the electronics giant and other parts of the business to the detriment of minority shareholders. That's what prosecutors say. He has consistently denied any wrongdoing. He's always said he acted in the interest of all shareholders and that this merger was part of normal business activities to future-proof Samsung, especially amid geopolitical risks and with burgeoning technologies like artificial intelligence. Now, this case has gone on for three years. And after all these hearings, there's been more than 100 of them. The uh, Central District Court in South Korea's capital, Seoul, will hand down its ruling on Friday. And the ruling itself, whilst it is against Mr. Lee as an individual, could have a bearing on Samsung as a company. If Mr. Lee is found innocent, then Samsung continues to operate how it's operated. Nothing was found to be illegal. If he's found guilty, however, then as well as potential prison sentences for him, it could pave the way for legal challenges to the merger itself, especially uh, legal challenges held by some of those shareholders who feel they've suffered. And now whether that would have a direct impact on Samsung uh, is an issue we would have to, to wait and see. Uh, this distraction of that happening could unpick uh, several years of business restructuring and could really impact on the Samsung we see in the future. Yeah, really interesting thing to watch there. All right. That is the BBC's Rich Preston in London. Rich, good as always to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. And Mark, it is officially Girl Scout cookie season. Mm. All right. Tell me, what's your favorite kind? Oh, no question. Thin mints. Yeah, Put them yeah. in the freezer. Sleeve in the freezer. Ooh. Delicious. How about you? I've never thought of putting them in the freezer, oh, but I am solidly in the Thin Mint camp yeah. with you. I have been since I was a kid, and I made it through a few years as a daisy and a brownie. But our next guest has a whole lot more experience in the Girl Scout biz than I do. Malia Whiney was the Girl Scout's top cookie seller in Arizona last year. And Mark, can you guess how many boxes of cookies she sold? No idea, but I'm pretty sure she didn't come to my door, so her numbers could have been even higher. Because <laughs> you would have bought a bunch, I bet. Okay, here you go. 7,877 boxes of cookies. That wow. is how many. That is a lot of boxes of cookies. It is a whole lot of cookies. In fact, more than 7,000 girls in Arizona sold more than 3 million cookies last year. Whiny is an 8th grader from Gilbert who likes competitive dance and has been in the Girl Scouts since kindergarten. I spoke with her more about what it was like. Well, my mom put me in at first, but then, like, when I joined, I realized how much I liked, like, doing all the activities and, like, ended up selling Girl Scout cookies my first year and really liked doing it. Mm -hmm. What are your favorite kinds of activities you do in the Girl Scouts? I like going on, like, the travel and then also going to Girl Scout camp with my friends and, like, being able to hang out with them. Yeah, yeah. And your mom was a Girl Scout too, right? Yeah. So this runs in the family. (laughs) Okay, so... 
7,877 boxes of cookies last year. Is that the right number? Yes. That is a very impressive number. Did you know as you were selling this many boxes last year that you may be toward the top or maybe even would win this award? Honestly, not really because my original goal was to only sell 7,500, but we got more cookies and just ended up being that number. And, like, I talked to some of my other friends, and they were planning on selling, like, a good amount more than I was. So hmm. I was expecting maybe, like, third, fifth-ish. But <laughs> so the first was, like, a really big surprise. Huh. Okay, so let's talk about how you do this because this is not the Girl Scout cookie-selling kind of situation I was in when I was a kid, right? <laughs> is a lot of it online? Um, A good amount of it is online, but I do sell quite a bit more, like, during, like, boothing or, like, going – around my neighborhood and putting up, like, signs or knocking on people's door to ask them. So you still do go door-to-door and and ask folks to buy cookies? Yes. What's your pitch? So I knock on the door and then I ask them, would you like to buy some Girl Scout cookies? And then if they say no, I say, "Um, would you like to get, like, a paper that has my QR code so you can get some if you want some later? And if they say no to that, too, then I say, have a good day and thank you. What if they say yes? Then I would give them my menu that I has that has all the cookies on them, and mm-hmm. I ask them which ones would they like. Okay, so the the menu of the Girl Scout cookies has also changed a little bit since I was a kid. Yeah. What's your favorite? My favorite cookie is the New Adventurefuls. Ooh, I don't even know what that is. Describe it. It's a like brownie with what sea salt caramel on top, and a little bit of a chocolate drizzle with a little bit of chocolate on the bottom of the cookie. That sounds really good. Do you yeah. find yourself sort of selling these cookies to folks and being like, you know, you should try this one. It's the best one. Yeah. <laughs> Does everyone default to Thin Mints? Most people do, but there's also people that like a lot of people also like Samoas as well as like some of the more peanut butter cookies. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so a lot of it door to door. How does it work when you sell it online? Do you have family helping, friends sending out the link? Are you selling cookies all over the country? I have like a website that you can buy cookies from, and then I also make like a music video that my mom posts on like her social media. And I have like my sister and other family members like tell their coworkers and things like that. Wait, tell me about this music video. What do you do? So like I pick a song that I want to like make my lyrics to. And then I like write lyrics that are like all based on like Girl Scout things or cookie things. (laughs) And then like we film the video and then post it. When I wake up in my own cookie world, I get up out of bed to sell with my homegirls. Hey, Mindy, she's so cool. I'll cook it up just selling cookies by the pool. I, and you said you're a dancer, so does that go in as well? Yeah. So you also said something called boothing. What does that mean? Are you sitting outside of grocery stores and things like that? Yes. Is that harder or easier than going door to door and blind knocking and talking to people? I like boothing better because, like, I tend to sell more cookies and, like, you get to see more people throughout the day or as, like, most people now especially don't answer the door Mm. because of all, like, the solicitors and things. So I like boothing better because you get the chance to talk to more people and tell them more about Girl Scouts. So have you always been sort of outgoing? How do you approach this challenge of talking to strangers, which is something that a lot of kids would have a lot of trouble with, I'm sure? I've always liked to just, like, talk with other people, especially when I was, like, younger. So it's never really been really a problem for me to talk to people. Some days are definitely harder than others, but most days I'm, like, really ready to go. Yeah. How many hours do you think you spent selling this many boxes of cookies? A lot. Probably, <laughs> like, the, like, well, like, a full-time job, probably, like, 40 a week. What do you think you learned from doing this? And, and you learn every year when you do it. 
I learned how to like learn new like marketing techniques on how to like get people to buy some because not the same thing was going to work for every person. Mm-hmm. And I learned how to like set goals each year to see and set plans on how to reach those goals and how to like at the end of the year split up my money to see what I want to spend it on. So yeah. like if I want to travel or if I want to do different like in-state Girl Scout activities or even just like figuring out what rewards I want to get. Yeah. Okay. So there is sort of a reward system. It's a lot like running a business. Yeah. Do you think that's the – are you going to do that in the future? We're going to see you opening your own store or something like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you want to sell? Cookies? Uh, no. <laughs> I want to be a lawyer or a doctor. So I want to have like my own like hospital or like law firm. Yeah. Okay. So you won last year in the state. Yes. And we're just kind of getting cookie season kicked off here right now, right? Yes. What do you think for this year? You think you're going to win it again? This year I've decided to take a little bit more of a back step with like selling cookies because last year was really tough and I made it through. Mm-hmm. And my goal ultimately was to be top seller, which I didn't think was going to happen last year, but it did. So this year I'm more focusing on like just different like things for like personal goals that I, I have during Girl Scouts with like different rewards, things that I want to do and like different high honors I want to get. All right. That is Malia Whiney from Gilbert, Troop 7190, joining us, the top seller in Arizona last year for the Girl Scouts. Malia, thank you so much for coming in, and congratulations. Thank you. That's my mitts. Go mitts. Go mitts. That's my tags. Ooh, ooh, ooh. That's my dosies. Go dosies. A lot of people have welcomed the recent news that Selena Gomez will be portraying Arizona's own Linda Ronstadt in an upcoming biopic, including singing Ronstadt's songs. Critic Robert Palo, though, has a different take. I called my friend Raushin the other day to ask what she thought about the news that Selena Gomez, one of her favorite singers, will be playing Linda Ronstadt, one of my favorite singers, in a movie about Ronstadt's life. Raushin thought this was a good idea. Selena is a singer and an actor, she pointed out. She ought to be able to portray a famous singer pretty well. Not according to a lot of Linda fans. I'd noticed a number of them carping about the casting on social media. Well, maybe not the casting so much as the fact that instead of lip-syncing to Linda Ronstadt's classic recordings, Selena Gomez will be re-recording the singer's biggest hits for the movie, which is in pre-production now. It's been done before in rock and roll movies, most recently in Rocketman, the Elton John biopic, and memorably by Sissy Spacek in Coal Miner's Daughter and Beverly D'Angelo in that movie about Patsy Cline. But these actors were not superstar singers when they played one. It was probably mostly old people complaining about this, Raushin told me. She thought they wanted the movie to be more about Linda and less about Selena. By old people, I guessed she meant me and my contemporaries, people who grew up listening to Linda Ronstadt back when she ruled the radio airwaves, when all of her albums and singles went gold, when she was the queen of rock music.
Raushin referred to this as gatekeeping, something I thought sounded familiar. She suggested that Linda Ronstadt fans didn't want to share their singer with young people who might not appreciate her the way they did. Maybe they don't like that a lot of people will go see this movie to see Selena, and not because it's about Linda Ronstadt, Raushin told me. I mean, that's why I'll see that movie when it comes out. Raushin, who's a 24-year-old actor living in Manhattan, thought this was silly. She said that people her age might know of Linda Ronstadt, but probably couldn't name one of her songs. That would change, she thought, once young Selena fans went to see her playing Linda in her newest movie. Plus, she said again, Selena can actually sing. Can she? After we hung up, I listened to a couple dozen Selena songs. Maybe because I'm an old person, everything I heard sounded like pretty much every other contemporary pop song I've heard in the last 20 years. A robotic, vocodered female voice singing over a loop of mechanized hand claps. Take away your things and go. You can't take back what you said. I'd read that Linda Ronstadt has agreed that Selena Gomez should play her in the movie, which will be directed by David O. Russell of Silver Linings Playbook fame. I want that to be enough for me, a lifelong Linda fan. Linda Ronstadt approves. While I wait for the Ronstadt biopic to be made, I'll return to my new Selena Spotify playlist, hoping to hear something that doesn't sound like R2-D2 chanting to a click track. And straining for gratitude that someone will be singing Linda Ronstadt songs in a movie that will introduce her to a whole new generation. All right, that'll do it for today's edition of the show. Be sure to join us again tomorrow morning with much more. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.